We're going to be starting our, uh, we're going to be doing our eighth lesson in the book of Mark today, and we're going to be uh, dealing with a subject that I think is uh, common to just about everybody, uh, something that's universal in the human experience, rejection. Would everybody here agree that rejection is just part of life? No? No hands! Unbelievable! I feel really rejected. I mean, everybody has experienced rejection in one form or another, or another right? Everybody has experienced rejection. Does, okay, here's a question that I think everybody will raise their hand on. How many people dislike rejection? Okay, hands. I see a couple hands that aren't up. Okay, I've got a sales job for you. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, people pretty much don't like uh, rejection. And, uh, you know, I, I don't like rejection. That's why I'm not like a used car salesman or something like that. Uh, so nobody really enjoys, nobody really, enjoy, I know your hands didn't all go up, but nobody really enjoys rejection per se. But we learn to deal with it, right? We learn to accept it because we can never really completely get away from it. Uh, sometimes rejection is just a necessary thing. Uh, we reject things all the time. We, we buy one thing instead of another. Uh, we, we screen telemarketers, right? Um, so, so we reject things, and, and hopefully rightfully so when we do. Um, maybe they're trying to sell us something. Maybe it's just something that we're not entirely comfortable with for whatever reason. Uh, if, if the opposite sex asks you for your phone number and you're not interested in them, uh, it's probably wise to reject them, and not give them your, uh, your phone number. Um, in fact, it's now easier than ever to reject somebody who asks for your phone number because they have these things called rejection hotlines. Has anybody ever heard of a rejection hotline? Kurt, you've heard of it? Okay. I, I'm not even going to ask. I'm not even going to ask. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they, they have these things called rejection hotlines. You can go to this website, and they even have one in the 425 uh, uh, area code. Um, but what you do is you, you give this number to somebody instead of your real number, and when they call, they get a kind of rude greeting that basically says, hey, man, get, get a hint, get a clue. This person doesn't want to talk to you. <laughs> what, what a brilliant idea. Why didn't I come up with that, you know? Uh, there's, there's an even um, crueler alternative to that. There, there's another rejection hotline where you call and you get kind of a generic greeting and you leave a message and those messages get posted on a website for all the world to listen to. That's pretty cruel. I'm, not, I'm glad I did not come up with that idea. But uh, yeah, rejection, it's just part of life. And often it comes because people are just uncomfortable or we're uncomfortable with something. Well, Jesus was passionate about some things. Uh, he was passionate about people. He loved people. And I think most of the people that we've seen so far in, in our narrative here in Mark were, were okay with that. They were okay with Jesus being passionate about people and loving people. Uh, he was passionate about truth. And there were probably fewer people who were comfortable with that. But overall, I mean, how can you villainize somebody who's passionate about truth. So most people didn't reject him because he was passionate about truth, but he was also extremely passionate about God and about God's kingdom. He was passionate about those things, and that made a lot of people feel uncomfortable, uneasy. And so what we're going to see today is the first taste of rejection that Mark tells us about in Jesus' ministry. 
Now, in our previous lesson, we saw that Jesus had experienced some immense popularity uh, in his ministry as he left the city of Capernaum and he went out by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And we saw that people from absolutely everywhere, including the Edomites, the bad guys from the Old Testament, uh, showing up and following Jesus along the shores of Galilee. And there were so many people there, so many people showed up that it would have taken forever for him to minister, excuse me, it would have taken forever for him to minister to all of these people. And so what he did is he separated the people who were following him for the sake of curiosity and the people who were following him for the sake of comfort from the people who were following him for the sake of commitment. He wanted to see who was really committed and he separates them by, what does he do? He goes up into the mountains Instead of staying on the shore, he goes up into the mountains, up these incredibly steep mountains, and says, those of you who I want, who are committed, you come with me up these mountains. And so he goes up the mountain and separates the people who are committed that way. Uh, and, and we read here in, in Mark chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. Now remember, what we saw last week is that teaching and casting out unclean spirits were things that Jesus wanted to be able to do among the people, but there were so many people there uh, that Jesus needed to effectively multiply his presence in order to be more effective. And so what he does is he, he appoints 12 committed followers to helping him. Now remember, there aren't just 12 people who go up there. We don't know how many people exactly are going up there, uh, but the 12 were chosen from among those who were summoned to join Jesus up on the mountain. And Jesus actually had a lot of disciples. Uh, we don't know exactly how many, hundreds maybe? Uh, you know, we don't know, dozens at least. But out of, out of all of these disciples, he selects 12. Out of, out of all of these people who are following him up the mountain, he selects 12. And the 12 are given distinct privileges and distinct authority. Now, we, we don't know why these 12 out of all the people who, who were summoned up to the top of the mountain, why, why these 12 were, were selected, but we do know this. We know that Jesus is good, and so we can trust that his, uh, that his intentions, his reasons for choosing these 12 are good. Uh, now, there are three things that these guys are being called to do. The first is to experience Jesus. They're called to a personal experience with Jesus. Now, Jesus could have said, look, I'm just appointing you, you 12. Um, he could have sent message, uh, you know, he could have summoned them, not up to the mountains, but just said, okay, you 12 down there, you start doing this. He could have done that, but he calls them to a personal experience because he doesn't want them going out and talking about something that they have not personally experienced first, and that is Jesus, the kingdom of God being near. So these men are going to be talking about what they themselves had experienced. They're going to be speaking out of experience. The second thing is they're being sent out to evangelize. First experience, second evangelize. That is to preach, proclaim. Um, And what would they proclaim? The same thing that Jesus had been teaching and, and proclaiming, and that is repentance and teaching that the kingdom of God is here in Jesus so they're called, they're called to experience, to evangelize, and they're also being given the authority to exercise. I'm not talking about exercising on a bike. They're not going to be running a marathon or anything like that. The kind of exercising that they're doing is exercising, as in 
the movie The Exorcist, you know, the, the green pea vomit and all that, the spinning heads. No, that, that, that stuff's all, you know, Hollywood, but they're being called to exercise, the ability to cast out unclean spirits. Now, one of the things that only Matthew records is the, um, the set of instructions specifically given to the 12, because Matthew was one of the 12. He was there to record all of it. Um, Jesus sends them out, but he tells them not to go to the Gentiles and not even to go to the Samaritans. Instead, they're instructed specifically to go to the, quote, lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who they're going to see. So Jesus is sending them out. Uh, They're not going to go right back down onto the shores of Galilee to to minister to the people. Rather, Jesus is sending them out to the people, to to the villages throughout Israel. One of the, um, so, so what we read, part of Jesus' words here uh, issue a very clear warning. One of the things we know is that he's warning them about what they're going to face when he sends them out. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 18, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So in other words, they're going to have to be wise, that, and that's, that's kind of what uh, being like a serpent is. That's why he's likening them to, uh, to being uh, serpents. They'll have to be wise, cunning, secretive. Those are, you know, those are things that a, that a serpent does. And they'll have to be innocent, like doves. And they're undoubtedly going to make some people really uncomfortable. And when the authorities start getting uncomfortable, yeah, it's, it's trouble. Jesus goes on to say in verse 21 in Matthew 10, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will raise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You see, the message that Jesus was entrusting these 12 with was something that was extremely divisive. It was so divisive, it would even trample family loyalty. Is that crazy? Can you imagine, moms or dads, can you imagine betraying your child to death? That's insane. I can't can't even fathom that. I mean, no matter what my kids do, there's nothing that I can think of that would would cause me to betray them unto death. And and that's what... uh, that's what Matthew recorded Jesus warning them about, that that's what's going to happen. Uh, we're going to see the importance of family loyalty and, and where that, that lies in the spectrum of things that are important. Uh, but first, Mark's going to tell us who those 12 men. So back to our text in Mark, Mark chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. Uh, and he, Jesus, appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, And John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, it's kind of interesting to note, I guess, that in in all of the gospel narratives, uh, Peter is always the first one named. So apparently there was no question that Peter was the leader, basically, of the bunch. There, there was Jesus, of course, who, who's the head, but Peter was really kind of the most prominent of the 12 who get appointed here. Uh, and we also find that Judas Iscariot is also, uh, is always named last. Uh, and it's kind of like they, they, they add him begrudgingly, like uh, and, and Judas, who, who betrayed Jesus. So there's, there's kind of a, a tone of 
begrudgment there. Uh, we should also note that the NASB, which is what we use here, I, I prefer the NASB um, just for, for a lot of reasons, but the NASB leaves out a piece of information that's included in some translations like the ESV or the NIV. Um, and and I, I actually think that this is something that should be included. Uh, verse 14 in the ESV says, And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. Uh, so that whom he also named apostles. Um, I believe that part about him naming them as apostles actually belongs in there. Uh, some ancient manuscripts have that in there. Some of them don't. So it's kind of one of those things where we're not exactly sure if that was in the original, but what do the earliest manuscripts say? What, what do the earliest copies of, of Mark's book say? Uh, and the earliest ones seem to have more of an inclination toward, yeah, those words are in there. Uh, so we need to understand that these 12 are probably named as apostles here. Maybe, maybe they're not. Uh, but an apostle has the authority of the one who's sending them. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's naming them as his delegates, his representatives, to do the things that only he, uh, up to this point, has had the authority to do. And these other disciples who are present aren't being given the same authority, the same responsibilities. So where does Jesus go from here, from, from the mountaintop? Well, Mark continues in, in verse 20 here. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again, to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. So Jesus apparently has gone back to Capernaum, which, uh, as, as we noted in earlier lessons, seems to be where Jesus' ministry was centered. This is where he was living during the years of his ministry. And once again, a crowd gathers uh, just like the good old days. Remember back in Mark chapters 1 and 2? Uh, that's where he was. He was in this home in Capernaum, uh, Simon Peter uh, and, and Andrew's home. Uh, he was ministering out of their place, and apparently that's where he's gone back to. Um, and it sounds like the 12 probably aren't there with him. Uh, at least not all of them are there. They're probably... Um, like I said, back at Simon Peter and Andrew's house. So it's possible that Peter and Andrew are there. Uh, maybe even James and John are there. They were there back in chapter 2. Um, whatever the case, multitudes show up and Jesus has his work cut out for him. And there's limited space and high expectations. People are excited. Jesus is back. And so all these people start showing up at this house again. In fact, Jesus is keeping himself so busy ministering to people that nobody is taking taking the time to eat. Nobody is eating. Nobody's taking a lunch break. Nobody is going home for dinner with the family. Nobody is eating. People are hungry to fill their stomachs, obviously, but apparently people are even more hungry to hear and experience Jesus. Listen to what happens. Verse 21. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying... He has lost his senses. He's lost his senses. Actually, I, I, I like the, the literal translation of the Greek even better than that, which is uh, he's outside of himself. That's what's, that, Somebody who's crazy, you'd say, man, he, he's outside of himself. You know, the, don't know what's going on with, with him now. But yeah, that, that's what his family is saying about him. Uh, this is where it starts getting interesting. Mark tells us that his, his own people, uh, or depending on what your translation is, maybe it says kinsmen, they show up on the scene. Uh, it's Jesus' family. Uh, apparently, word had reached Nazareth that Jesus was doing all these crazy things and, and bringing in just 
crowds and crowds of people. And so, uh, as, as we're going to see later, Mary is there. Um, Mary and some of Jesus' brothers come down to Capernaum, basically hoping to save Jesus from himself, hoping to interfere with what he's doing, pull him away from what he's doing. And they think that he's just lost his mind. He's, he's outside of himself. This guy's gone crazy. Look at what he's doing. This is something that only a crazy person would do. Now, Mary would have, would have known that Jesus was special, right? I mean, she had knowledge of Jesus uh, going back years and years, 30-something years, to when the angel came to her and said, you are going to be pregnant with a child. You're, you're the one who's going to have the, the chosen one, the Messiah. Uh, so she would have known that he was special, but maybe, like everyone else, maybe she didn't completely understand exactly what Jesus had come to set people free from. Maybe she was like a lot of others who expected the Messiah to free the people from bondage to the Roman Empire when Jesus was only interested in freeing people from bondage to sin. And so it seems likely that she was thinking that Jesus was keeping himself busy with things that were actually preventing him from becoming this political leader that a lot of people thought the Messiah was going to be. And she didn't come alone. She brought some of Jesus' brothers or half-brothers as well. Uh, we should note that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him, uh, according to John chapter 7, verse 5. Throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, his brothers were not believers, although some of them eventually would, uh, at a later date, come to put their faith in Jesus. They would come to recognize who he was. Uh, we know that his brother James went on to be a leader in the early church in Jerusalem, and we know that Jude uh, was also Jesus' brother, and he would go on to be an influential Christian leader as well. See, someone can be passionate about things like football. Uh, and, and we're okay with that. that that's, we're comfortable with that. Somebody can be decked out in Seahawk gear and uh, put Seahawk stickers all over their cars. And cool, you know, that, that doesn't make me uncomfortable. Uh, somebody can be passionate about being a musician. Uh, you know, Caleb, you know, he's gone through these stages where all he wants to do is play his guitar that's cool. You know, I, I'm, I'm comfortable in it. Anybody would probably be comfortable with him being a, a musician uh, or even video games. You know, somebody might live in front of video games and, you know, most people aren't too put off by that. They're, they're not too terribly uncomfortable with that. But when somebody becomes passionate about God and the kingdom of God and the things that matter to God, whoa. Whoa, most people aren't comfortable with that at all. That, that's a different ballgame. When, when a person devotes their life to some earthly, temporal thing that won't last, cool, man, that, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. But when somebody, when somebody devotes their life to an eternal perspective, to God's kingdom, it's divisive. People aren't comfortable with it. They look at it and they say, that, that's nonsense. So Jesus must be crazy, right? That's, that's what his mom, that's what his, his brothers or half-brothers are all saying. He's one of those crazy backwoods fundamentalist uh, religious fanatic types um, of people. And, and, and this is the first time that anyone has leveled that accusation at Jesus. That he, he's just kind of a religious fanatic. And it's coming from his family, from his own family. Man, th that had to hurt. Uh, we're we're going to come back um, to the family and deal with the family again at the end of the chapter, but we should note that this is the first wrong 
assumption or wrong theory that people have about why Jesus is doing what he's doing in his ministry, why he's so passionate about the kingdom of God. The first wrong assumption here is that he's a lunatic. He's lost his mind. The second wrong theory comes immediately after that. Mark chapter 3, verse 22. The scribes, last time we saw them was chapter 2 in the house in Capernaum. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now the religious leaders, the the scribes or the Pharisees or whoever, they they couldn't deny what Jesus was doing. Uh, Was he casting out demons and unclean spirits? Yeah, there, there was no question about it. He was casting out demons. Uh, there was apparently no question in their minds that that is what Jesus was doing. But the question for them was not, what is he doing? The question for them is, okay, well, he's doing this, but how is he doing it? By what authority is he doing it? And so they say that it must be by the power of the demonic spirit, uh, the demonic spirit Beelzebul, who, uh, which literally means Lord of the dwelling place or Lord of the temple. Makes sense, right? I mean, uh, the, these, these unclean spirits, these demons are using human bodies as a dwelling place, right? And so Beelzebul is the Lord of the dwelling place, and so he's driving these unclean spirits and demons out, according to the scribes. Now, the explanation that the scribes have for Jesus uh, being such an extreme religious fanatic is basically that he himself is the king of the unclean spirits. The only way he could be getting rid of these unclean spirits is if he is the leader of the unclean spirits. That's their theory. Now, the first way that people dismiss Jesus is to say that he's a lunatic. The second way is to accuse him of being a liar. A lunatic? A liar. He's claimed to be God. We saw that back in chapter 2. It was unmistakable. He claimed that he had the authority to forgive sins. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And so Jesus, by forgiving this man's sins, the paralytic sins in chapter 2, was claiming to be God. But they won't have any of that. They, they, They don't believe that. There has to be some other explanation they're thinking. He must be a liar. And that, I mean, that, that's what a demonic spirit would do, right? I mean, he's lying, and the, the, the unclean spirits are liars, so that makes sense. So their means of dismissing Jesus is to say that he's a lying demonic spirit, the king of the, of the demonic spirits, and he's using that authority to cast out other demonic spirits. What a backwards, stupid theory. Um, what would the enemy of God have to gain by driving out the enemy of God, other, other spirits which represent the enemy of God. I mean, Jesus thinks that this is a pretty laughable theory as well, and so he points it out to them, probably more gently than I would have, obviously. Uh, so he, he, he points it out by saying this in Mark chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. Now this is actually the first parable that Mark records for us. uh, And we're actually going to see more of that in the coming lessons uh, starting next week. Uh, But a parable is basically a story 
or, uh, or a proverb that is symbolic. It communicates truth by showing a correspondence between um, the, the things in the story, the fictional things in the story, and reality. So Jesus is basically saying, hey guys, the enemy of God stands united against God. But he uses the image of a kingdom and the image of a house to demonstrate this principle. For, for a kingdom or a house to stand, everybody has to have a common goal. Everybody has to be on the same page, at least on, on certain matters. Everybody has to be uh, united together, moving in the same direction. The moment a kingdom or a house breaks up into factions, they're immediately less effective in their mission. And this is exactly why Jesus would go on to pray for the unity of believers. The night before his death, I mean, he's, he's, he knows that he's going to be dying the next day, and he prays that we would be united. You think that in, in his last moments, he's praying for things that don't matter to him? No, he's praying for things that are really, really important to him. Unity among believers is one of those things. He's praying for the unity of believers because he knew that there must be order and cohesiveness. There must be unity. And that's why it's important for us to address any types of interpersonal issues that come up among us with, between believers because we cannot stand to be divided. That's the enemy's way of dividing God's people is to bring up interpersonal issues. But Jesus prayed that we would be one, as he and the Father are one. He also said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, uh, and that, that's not up here, but basically the gist of that is go to others if we've offended them. If, you, if you've offended somebody, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go make things right with that person. That's from Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. But then he also said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, that we're supposed to go to others who have offended us. So you see how that works? It goes both ways. If we've offended somebody, we go to them. If we're offended by somebody, we go to them. The basic lesson there is that it's always our responsibility to reach out for reconciliation. It's always our responsibility. We don't wait for somebody to come to us. If we know that there's any kind of offense, whether they've offended us or we've offended them, we go to them and make things right. Because unity is that important. Unity is a priority for Jesus because a house divided against itself will not be able to stand. In the year 1913, I'm going to destroy this guy's name. I think he's probably Scandinavian or something. Uh, whenever you have LHJ uh, together, how, how do you pronounce that? I, I don't know. Anyway, in the year 1913, a man by the name of Viljalmer Stephenson, I'm, I'm going to guess that's how you say it, Viljalmer Stephenson, he led a boat. Uh, out of Canada called the Carluck uh, on an expedition to the North Pole. Uh, when word got out that he was leading this expedition to explore the North Pole and to charter uh, the North Pole, another captain by the name of Ernest Shackleton, I, I can say that all day, um, led a boat called the Endurance on what was probably an even more challenging expedition. Uh, his boat was called the Endurance to the South Pole. Uh, so you had boats at the same time, pretty much, exploring opposite poles of the earth. And not surprisingly, uh, both ships came across a lot of ice. In fact, what happened uh, in the end is both ships ended up getting caught in packs of ice and stuck. Two ships in the same predicament, the same uh, circumstances, and yet the outcomes were completely 
different in either case. Uh, at the north, the crew from the Carluck quickly generated into a bunch of uh, selfish, backstabbing, cutthroat individuals who were just looking out for their own personal survival. Uh, and the end result was that all 11 crew members died. They, they backstabbed each other to death. They all died. Uh, at the South Pole, Shackleton's crew faced the exact same problems that they were facing at the North Pole. Fear, first of all. I mean, you're scared. Uh, who, who's going to come rescue us? And when, when you're in fear, you make bad decisions, right? Uh, you, you, it's easier to make bad decisions. Uh, they're starving. It's unbelievably cold. So it's the same conditions on either pole. And yet, with Shackleton's, uh, w- with his crew, they, they, they didn't turn into a bunch of degenerate you know, thugs who were ready to stab each other in the back. Instead, they worked together. They came together looking out for the interests of everybody, each person looking out for the interests of everybody, standing united, and each person on that crew lived. One crew, everybody died. The other crew, everybody lived. The difference is that one crew came together, one didn't. One crew was united, the other crew was divided. And that made the difference between life and death. And Jesus is saying that this is the principle. The same principle is why the enemy of God, Satan, is as strong as he is. The unclean spirits stand united against the kingdom of God. They stand united against him. For one demon to be casting out other demons uh, would be pointless. It It wouldn't only be a civil war, but why would the scribes be complaining about it? Wow, if the enemy's divided, great. This is a good thing, but they're not saying that this is a good thing. They're, they're, kind, of, they're kind of skeptical and, and fearful, and they're kind of saying it's a bad thing. The point is, the, the, the kingdom of the enemy of God, the kingdom of Satan, is not divided, but it's still powerful and active in the world. So obviously, the accusation that Jesus is doing what he's doing by the power of Beelzebul is completely false. Jesus isn't done, though. He's, he's got one more illustration to make the same point. Verse 27, he says, But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Now this parable, for me anyway, has always been a little bit more difficult to understand. Uh, and it really takes, it really requires a, a closer examination. The, the other ones that we just covered about the kingdom divided and the house divided, those are pretty easy to understand. This one is a little bit more difficult. Um, if we look at the context, it's going to make it a little bit easier. So let's look at this piece by piece. Uh, first of all, who's the strong man? Who's the strong man that Jesus is referring to? It's Satan. Sa- Satan's the strong man that Jesus is talking about. That's, that's what he's been talking about. Uh, he's talking about the kingdom of darkness, which is represented by a house in the previous passage, and that, that metaphor uh, is being carried over uh, here in this verse as well. So Jesus says that nobody can enter Satan's kingdom and plunder his property unless they first bind Satan. Now, there's only one person who can bind Satan, right? And that's Jesus. Jesus has the authority to bind Satan. Jesus is stronger than this strong man, and when Jesus came to the earth... When Jesus came to be near to us, he was binding the strong man. He was binding Satan. And he's going to plunder it by bringing the gospel in and taking things out of the kingdom of darkness, people who are lost in darkness, and bringing them out of the strong man's house. 
Now, this word plunder means to run through or take by a means of force. Casting out unclean spirits is one of the ways that Jesus is ransacking the kingdom of darkness. Why would the enemy of God come in and ransack his own house? He wouldn't. It would be pointless. And we see a lot of people going around claiming to bind Satan in, in Jesus' name. You see this kind of stuff on TV a lot. Um, you know, the, the televangelists love to do this one. But I would propose that doing so is uh, not only dangerous, but it's unnecessary because it's already been done. Jesus has already demonstrated that he has, he's the only one who has the authority to do that. Now, followers of Jesus are never instructed to pronounce judgment on unclean spirits or on the kingdom of Satan because only Jesus can do it. Even angels, even angels who are waging, constantly waging spiritual battles against the kingdom of Satan don't pronounce or execute judgment on unclean spirits. The authority to do that belongs to God and God alone. Listen to what we read in Jude chapter, uh, Jude, which is a chapter, Jude verse 9. Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now I would say that it's, it's not only unbiblical, but it's also very dangerous to be taunting demons and unclean spirits by pronouncing uh, judgments, railing judgments against them. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to Jesus. He alone has the authority, as he's, ex- as he's exercised, to bind the enemy of God. Now, it's interesting to note, Mark records Jesus following this parable up with a very uh, stern and often confusing warning uh, to the scribes. And this is something that really trips a lot of people up. Uh, let's continue. Mark chapter 3, verses 28 to 30. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, but whatever blasphemies they, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So if we're being honest about this verse, it freaks a lot of people out, right? This is something that, that really kind of scares people. Everybody, we, we know that everybody's a sinner, everybody needs forgiveness, but Jesus is saying here that there are some people who won't receive forgiveness, won't receive the forgiveness that they need to be in God's presence for eternity. And a lot of people have been scared by this passage with good reason. Uh, some people have misunderstood this passage to mean that if someone... Uh, says that Jesus is really the enemy of God, or Jesus is really Satan, that they've lost the ability to be forgiven. Uh, Some people have understood it to mean that uh, if we say that the work of God is really the the work of the enemy, that they can't be forgiven. It's unpardonable, but I think that these are false interpretations. Um, Actually, a few years ago, uh, some of you may remember this, a few years ago, there was an atheist organization that was paying people to put on YouTube a pronouncement of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, uh, turning their backs on the religion that these people grew up in. And all these young adults started posting these videos on the internet saying, I I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. In other words, I want nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Do they seal their fate? Are are, are they lost forever? Can they ever be forgiven? Let's, Let's talk about that. 
Um, I think that what they were doing, they're, they're misunderstanding this passage. This passage is actually warning against something. Uh, and there are several things that we have to notice here if we're going to correctly understand what Jesus is warning them about, what, what Jesus is saying here. First of all, Jesus isn't saying that these scribes have already committed this unpardonable sin, right? He, he's warning them about where they're going. He's warning them about, about doing this unforgivable sin. If they've already committed this unpardonable sin, uh, what's the point in warning them about it? What, what's the point in saying, you don't want to go here? If you do this, then, if, if you do X, then Y? No, he'd say, you've already done this. This is where you stand, but that's not what he says. Uh, secondly, this is the only time that Jesus issues this warning. And in fact, this is uh, the only time that we find this type of warning in all of Scripture. Matthew records it as well, uh, but neither Luke nor John do. So there's something about this specific situation that tells us that whatever the unpardonable sin is, these guys are close to it. If there was some unpardonable sin that if you do this one time, one and, one and you're done, uh, I, I think we would find it a lot more in the Bible. Uh, these guys have not crossed the line that Jesus is warning them about yet, but they are getting closer to it. So what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Well, let's start by looking at some of the roles of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 6, tells us that the Holy Spirit is given as a witness to who Jesus is. He's a witness. He, he, he testifies about Jesus. Uh, and Jesus goes on to tell us in uh, John chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin when they don't know Jesus. He, he, he works, he has a pre-conversion ministry. Before a person converts to believing in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has been working in their heart to convict them of their need for him and of their sinfulness. So the entire work of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Jesus and to point people toward him. So to reject the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's to contradict what the Holy Spirit is testifying about. And that's what these guys, the, the, the scribes, that's what they are in the ver on the verge of doing. That's what they're taking a step towards doing. Now, the people who are accusing Jesus in this passage are stuck with the same decision that we are today. Is Jesus a lunatic? Is Jesus a liar? Or is he Lord? He, he, he claimed to be Lord. He claimed to be God. He, he exercised this incredible authority and showed his authority. And he claimed to be God by doing that. Now, you can go into almost any mental institution in the country and find somebody claiming to be God. Uh, I, I've been in mental institutions. When I was in college, I was a psychology major, uh, and I, I had to do like an internship at a mental institution. And yeah, there were people in there who claimed to be God. Uh, maybe if somebody tells you that they're claiming to be God, they are intentionally deceiving you. They're, they're saying that they are, but they, they know that they are not, or maybe they don't know that they're not, in which case they, I think they'd be crazy, but... Uh, so either they are a lunatic or they're a liar. Or maybe if somebody tells you, I am God, maybe they're telling the truth. But there's only one person who can make that claim, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. He's the only one who can claim to be Lord. What is unforgivable and unpardonable is to enter eternity with the wrong answer to that question. Who is Jesus? Lunatic, liar, or Lord? 
The only unforgivable sin is entering into eternity with the wrong answer. He's Lord, and there is no forgiveness of sins apart from him. You can be forgiven when you trust in him alone for salvation, and there's no other way. When the human heart grows cold and rejects the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit, what Romans chapter 1 tells us is that God hands them over to their sins and hands them over to their sins and hands them over to their sins. It's not a one-time event. Rather, it's, it's a process that somebody goes through where their heart just becomes colder and colder and colder and finally it's sealed by their own rejection of the Holy Spirit's ministry. And these scribes have taken the first step in that direction. Jesus caught them taking that step of disbelief. And he's basically saying to them, turn back now before it's too late. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't uh, a set of words. It's not uh, you know, a forbidden word or phrase that you can never say or, or, or you'll be forgiven. Rather, it's an attitude that, becomes, that starts small and becomes big. It takes over a person's heart. It just ends up in total rebellion and rejection against what the Holy Spirit has testified about. The only way that they could slander Jesus like this would be to ignore and thus reject the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Now, Jesus' uh, Jesus' family apparently hasn't given up on pulling Jesus away from uh, from his ministry here. So we continue uh, reading in verses 31 to 35. Then his mother... Jesus' mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I love that Jesus includes women there. People who claim that that Christianity is a sexist religion, take a look. Take a look. Now, I I don't know about you, but if if you guys, uh, if somebody were in the back saying, hey, hey, Toby, your mom and dad are outside, I'd be wrapping things up here pretty quick and getting out there because I'd figure, whoa, something must be seriously wrong if they've shown up uh, and they're trying to pull me away from this. But that's not what Jesus does. In fact, he almost seems a little bit defiant in the way that he refuses to go to them. Instead, he looks around and he says, you are my family. You guys are my real family. Now, why would he say that? It's because he's thinking with an eternal perspective. And someone who's interested in doing the will of God is closer to Jesus than Jesus' own mother, his own blood relatives. Now, somebody might object to this by saying, now, wait a minute, Jesus isn't really honoring his mother here, is he? I mean, wouldn't that be a sin? I mean, after all, that, that's in the Ten Commandments, you, you know, honor your mother and father. Jesus doesn't seem to be doing that here. Now, I, I hear where that argument, where that objection is coming from, and there's a very simple solution to that, and, and it's this. We're, we're supposed to honor God above anything and everything else, including family if your family is trying to pull you away from God or trying to pull you away from what God has set forth for you to do, you, the only thing that you can do is follow God first and your family second. 
Uh, It's the same principle with government. If the government were to make it illegal for us to worship God, we don't follow that. We, We go with what God has instructed first, and that is to be obedient to Him, to worship Him, to live for Him, and the government will just have to either settle for that or, or arrest us. But it's not something that we can compromise on. God is first in our list of priorities at all times. Now we know that two of Jesus' half-brothers uh, would go on to each write a book in the Bible, James and, and Jude. In fact, uh, James w- was a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And yet, if you look through their books, neither one of them says a single thing about the fact that they are a half-brother of Jesus. Now, if, if you were a half-brother of Jesus, wouldn't you have put that in there? You know, I, I'm thinking, you know, thinking, you know, in the here and now, I, I probably would have included that because that would have given me a little bit more credibility maybe. But no, neither one of them even gives the slightest hint that they're the brother, the, 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 the half-brother of Jesus. Why is that? It's because the bond that they had with Jesus as followers of Jesus was stronger than the bond that they had with him as his half-brothers, as family. One final observation. Remember what Jesus said about a house divided? I think it's pretty significant that this comes right on the heels of that parable. See, his family's house isn't divided at this point. But if he were to go there, they would be divided because of him. Because they're not sure what to make of him. They come around eventually. At least we know that a few of them uh, do come around eventually. But for now, Jesus wants us to see that his kingdom is united by him. What Mark wants us to walk away from this narrative with is a deeper understanding of the fact that the call to discipleship is really a call to radical, radical obedience to God's will. The call to discipleship is a call to radical obedience to God's will. People who don't share your faith, they're not going to be comfortable with it. Maybe they'll reject you when when you want to talk about it. Maybe they'll reject you entirely. But that's okay. Our desire is that they'll eventually come around. We've got to love them anyway. We have to understand that radical obedience means more than just knowledge. The scribes had all kinds of knowledge, but it wasn't enough. They're, they're not being obedient. Radical obedience requires more than just casually following Jesus, you know, keeping in your comfort zone and, and doing what you, what you do agree with and not doing what you don't agree with or you're not comfortable with. No, it's submitting to him. Radical obedience become, means becoming part of a community that's brought together by him, united by Him and our love for Him. Undivided by differences, undivided by personal preferences, refusing to accept or settle for divisiveness because we're united by His love for us and our love for each other. See, the the world is going to offer all kinds of rejection, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus will never reject somebody who comes to him and says, I want to be obedient to God's will by following you. What's God's will? To be a part of his family through faith and obedience to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, uh, that it speaks 
so much truth into our lives. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and unrighteousness and points us back to Jesus. Lord, I just pray that you would teach us to be obedient to you through your word and through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper. in the springtime open and bloom as that moment the sun breaks through a stormy afternoon stars in the night sky rain on the grass